because I've only got one slide. Anybody had a headache? Yeah, a migraine, you know what a migraine is? Yeah, raise your hand if you've had a migraine. All right, I need some sympathy here. <laughs> so the last three days I've had a migraine. I've never had a migraine before, and now I realize that it's kind of a whole body experience. It's, it's not very fun. And this might have influenced just a little bit my sermon in the process of writing this and stuff. Um, because sometimes life isn't fun. Sometimes life is a bit miserable. Right, Doug? Sometimes life is not fun. For the last four months, we've been looking into this, these stories of the lineage of Jesus taken from Luke chapter 3. And we've been finding some interesting things. They've, they've told us what God's plan is. They've helped us to, uh, to learn to know and trust God's promises um, they've given us advice about how to have a good life. And last time that I preached, a couple weeks ago, we had Judah, and, and we heard his testimony of how God saved him by his grace. And, and really what he learned is that trusting God and leaning not on his own understanding was the best way to have a good life. But life is not always good, is it? Most people, no matter what their religious thinking is, they're trying to figure out how to have a good life. They want to have financial security, relational fulfillment, internal peace, purpose, meaning, uh, mental and physical health, joy. I mean, these are things that are just basic to the human experience. We're looking for these things. Some people just sum it up as happiness. How can you be happy? That's the good life, right? How do we have the good life? Ultimately, Judah realized trusting in God was a lot better than his own path. Um, But life is more complicated than just trust in the Lord and everything's going to be good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. He doesn't promise that life's going to be easy or good or joyful all the time or peaceful or fulfilling. So if trusting God doesn't give you a good life free from trouble, then what's the point? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. I'm going to start with Exodus chapter 6, but we'll go back to chapter 5. In Exodus chapter 6, we hear the name of a man, and we, we only see his name in the context of his children. His name is Aminadab, and you can find his name in Exodus chapter 6, verse 23. The Bible says this, Aaron took as his wife Elishabah, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Now, that's pretty much all we know about Aminadab, that he was the, the father of Elishaba and Nashon. That's it. So why is my sermon about Aminadab? <laughs> well, what we know about Aminadab is his context, and we know quite a bit about his context. And I want to maybe not tell Aminadab's story, but I want to tell the story of Aminadab's people at that time. Aminadab lived during a a period of slavery when Israel was forced into hard labor, and uh, they had to serve these taskmasters, the Egyptians. He saw babies thrown into the river and fed to crocodiles so that they could thin out the the population of Israel. Uh, He experienced what seemed to be the interminable might of Egypt, and then one of their own, a baby destined for the river, ended up in the palace, the the adopted child of the princess. 
And for 40 years, he gained influence. She called him Moses, out of the river is what that means. And he gained influence in the palace for 40 years, and everybody started to have some hope. And then, in an instant, he was running for his life because he'd, because he'd killed an Egyptian uh, guard, running for his life, and uh, that was that. Their hope was gone. And the next 40 years were no better than the last 40 had been for Aminadab and his family. That's what we know about Aminadab's life. And I, if I were to make an assumption here, I think you might agree, this is not the classical definition of a good life. What Aminadab experienced is on par with some of the worst conditions in the world today. Would you agree with that? So the question is, can God do something with this miserable life, with Aminadab's life? And is God still there? And since you already know the story of the Exodus, we'll not tell every bit of it, but I do want to focus on some highlights, maybe from Aminadab's perspective. The first encounter Aminadab likely had with God's power to save was when Moses and Aaron called a meeting. Uh, He brought all the elders of the people, and as many as would come, to Goshen um, in, in some space, and he And they talk to them. Aaron says, uh, this is how Moses interacted with God, the burning bush, you know, all these different things happened. He told him God's name, I am um, Yahweh, and and all these interesting things. And the people believed. Of course, he put his hand in his robe and it came out leprous and uh, his rod turned into a snake and he picked it up and it turned back into a rod. All these things they saw and the people believed. And suddenly they're, well, it might be good to to point out that Aminadab had experienced and, and, and watched the moral and, and, and uh, religious decline of his people uh, through their time in Egypt. You know, you get, you get beat down so much, um, and the people aren't um, participating in sacrifices. They're not doing uh, Sabbaths. They're, they're just in this forced labor scenario in a pagan environment, and the temptation is to just kind of give in to the culture around you. And Aminadab had been watching that, and so he sees Aaron and, and Moses, and, and there's something about this experience, like God is real, and there's a revival in their hearts, and they believe. And God is finally there to deliver them. Hooray! This is exciting. Things are going to get better. It's incredible. Um, and, and they all gathered together, all the people that were there, they bowed down, and they worshiped God. It was during this conversation that Aaron and Moses must have introduced or reintroduced these ideas, like that we need to go into the wilderness to sacrifice to our God. And don't forget about the Sabbath rest. Because in Exodus chapter 5, this is where I want you to turn back a page, chapter 5, verse 4, the king of Egypt says to, to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Right? Something's happened, something's changed, the people have gotten some religious fervor back, and they, they've kept the Sabbath, and, and he's mad. And so then he turns to the foreman in verse 7, don't supply any more straw for them to make bricks. Make the people get it for themselves, but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota because they're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Load them down with work, make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to these lies. 
One thing that we know about Aminadab and is that his son Nashon was called a prince of the tribe of Judah. He was one of the leaders during the time of the Exodus. Um, you know, when, when Moses kind of divides them up and has all the different leaders of the different tribes, Nashon was in that mix, which means that his dad, Aminadab, was probably the leader of the tribe of Judah previous to that. He was one of the elders uh, during this time. And, and that would suggest that Aminadab was part of the group in Exodus chapter 5, verse 21, that came to Moses and said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is not, it, it was not getting better. Like it was supposed to be getting better. And, and they've come to this point and it's not better. Why? Even Moses felt like there was something wrong. In verse 21, he turns to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak on your name, in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I think this is one of the first things we learn about God's plan for Aminadab's story. Our current pain may be a part of a bigger plan that God has for deliverance. If the people had been content to be slaves and just to have maybe a tiny bit of improvement in their experience, then what they were experiencing with Moses was, was bad and they were better off before Moses. But if the people wanted deliverance, then that process would cost them something before it blessed them. If you've ever dealt with an addiction, you know that this, this principle is true. Deliverance costs something. There are some addictions that seem like they have extra long tentacles that just wrap themselves around you. It might take days of cold sweats and feeling like literally like you're going to die, weeks of battling thoughts of temptation, months of realigning your life according to new values, and years of faithful struggle to keep your heart surrendered to your new path. Deliverance costs something. And this is something the, experience, the Israelites experienced too. In their path walking towards faithful trust in the God of heaven, if they were going to have deliverance, it was going to cost them something. Aminadab and the other leaders struggled through those days of hard labor, trying to quell the complaints all around them and... Um, People were blaming Moses and Aaron, wishing they hadn't come, doubting that God and all those things that they had seen there and heard from the wilderness story of how Moses met God, doubting that those were even true. Then Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh predictably refused to let the people go. And so what does Moses do? He calls down this plague from God. All the water turns to blood. Nobody has water to drink. To, do, to make food, to clean, to, to wash themselves. It's, it's all blood. And they, and they started to smell the fish as they died in the rivers. And it was nasty. And it was, it was miserable. What are you doing, God? Pharaoh asked for reprieve. The water turned back to normal again. And, and then he refused to let them go. And Moses called for another plague. And, and frogs came this time. And they, they filled everything, their beds, their, um, their, their clothes, they were uh, where they were walking, and every time they moved, they were 
moving around with frogs. If they were trying to make bread, frogs were coming into their kneading bowls. It was nasty. And, uh, well, Pharaoh asked for the frogs to go away. And so Moses asked for the frogs to go away from God, and, and God caused them to die everywhere, except for in the river, the frogs died. Piles of sticky, icky, stinky mess. Miserable. Again, Pharaoh said that they couldn't leave, and again, Moses called for a plague, and this time the dust turned to tiny flying swarming gnats that covered all of their, their livestock and covered all the people. They were everywhere. I've, I've had gnats, just like a, a swarm of gnats in front of me. Some uh, a fall day this, this past year, we were walking, and, and it was just like the air was filled with gnats. And it was nasty and uncomfortable and irritating. And uh, yeah, that, this was not nice. Some people even say that they, they, these were not just flying, swarming gnats, but they were lice. And that's even worse if you've ever had lice. Uh. <laughs> it was so bad that Pharaoh's magicians came to Pharaoh and the other two plagues they'd figured out. They were, they were going to like do their magic and make those plagues, but they couldn't make this plague. And so they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And it was. It was. God told Moses that he had a plan. And and this is something we need to recognize about the pain the Israelites were experiencing. Turn to chapter 7, Exodus 7, verse 3. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt to great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Lord's plan was deliverance for Israel and to make known to Egypt that He is God. That's His plan. And in order for that deliverance to happen, in order for them to know, truly know that He is God, it's going to hurt for a little while. And while this experience hurt them, none of these first plagues were deadly. Their extreme annoyance, though, provided Israel with a potent reminder that this is the God that promised to deliver them, and He is more powerful than all of Egypt's gods and all of Egypt's magicians and all of Egypt's plans. Their God is doing something miraculous, and He wanted them to to experience that. They needed to hurt a little bit in order to recognize the God that would deliver them. And time after time, Pharaoh agreed to let them go and then reversed his decision. And one plague after another came crashing down on the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian people. The next six plagues didn't touch Israel. And here they are, biting flies, uh, the horrible death of many of the animals, boils on the people of Egypt, burning lightning and massive hailstones falling from the sky, swarming locusts and darkness, such thick, total darkness that not even candles helped. Three days of that. Pharaoh finally relented after the darkness. It's like, fine, you can let your people go. And he'd been back and forth, you know. Sure you can go, no you can't. Sure you can go, no you can't. He, he relents now. Please, give us back the light. And it, as soon as the light came back, he did it again. He changed his mind. Now turn to Exodus 11, verses 1 through 3. The Lord says to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. One, one more plague. This one is different. All the others, 
All the others kind of came uh, in their consecutive uh, order, but this one is different, and it's, you can tell in this chapter that God gives special attention to this, and it makes, well, we need to give special attention to this plague too. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of all the people. So Moses told Pharaoh's God's, told Pharaoh God's plan. And, uh, well, this is what he said in verse 8. All these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me and say, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I'll go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Pharaoh was not happy. And the the Bible said that the Lord was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he does. It says uh, that that, that, uh, Pharaoh refused to let Israel go again. And after giving Pharaoh fair warning, Moses ends up going to Goshen. And he, he gathers Israel together again, and he talks to them. And in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in their neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you must select must be one year old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Take, a special, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with the bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of this meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, the legs, the internal organs must be roasted over a fire. Don't leave any of it till the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, carry your walking stick in your hand, eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. You think about their experience, Aminadab and all their families there that hear this story. They hear what's about to happen. Now, this last act of God would respond directly to Egypt. Uh, throwing these baby boys into the river. The infanticide of Egypt was being brought back to them. It would reach into every home of every family who did not trust the Lord. And, And this death decree applied to everyone who didn't put the lamb's blood on their doorposts. Everyone who did put the blood on their doorposts would be saved. I want you to recognize the difference. The first three plagues fell on everybody. The next six, just on the Egyptians. And this last one, it, it, it came to everybody who didn't believe. The only people that it passed over were those who believed in God and obeyed Him in faith. Their deliverance was not their family of origin, their skin color, or their national um, alliance. Their deliverance was their faith in God. As Moses told the elders about this plague and God's solution for Israel, the people believed. 
They recognized the God that had been doing this and was going to deliver them. They believed. And they had just gone around, like Moses had said, to ask for the, the, the gifts from the Egyptians, and, and they had been given all these gifts, and something, something was changing, and their minds were beginning to recognize God and to, and to truly trust in Him. And so they did this thing. They, they brought the lamb, and they put the blood on the doorposts. And, and here's what how Moses describes the judgment that would happen that night. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's get forward to verse 21. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of his door, out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You probably know the rest of the story of the Exodus, right? The people sacrifice the lambs. They prepare to leave. The Egyptians wail at the death of their firstborn from the lowest all the way up to the palace. They beg the Israelites to leave, and that next morning, as early as they can, more than a million of them begin the, the march towards the Red Sea. And there was a pillar of fire protecting them from... Uh, Egypt uh, there at the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts, they go through, there's manna from heaven providing them food, there's water that comes out of a rock, God meets them on a mountain, they get these Ten Commandments, they do the idol thing, and that was a big problem, and then they're on their way to Canaan, at Canaan they rebel, they forget that God has led them so far, and and they end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness back at Canaan. They end up with judges, and it's up and down and up and down. And then the kings, and it's up and down and up and down. And, and uh, faithful, you know, there's faithful leaders, and then there's idolatrous leaders. And, uh, well, ultimately, the promise of God endures through all of those things. And then one day, Emmanuel, God with us, is born. There's a reason that God commanded the Passover to be celebrated every year in all your generations. Uh, Let me give you four reasons that I can think of. The first reason is that God never wanted to forget that He was the one that brought them out of Egypt. It was His mighty hand. In fact, one time, not not more than one time, you can just look this up in, in the Bible and probably find four or five times throughout Israel's history that God says this. He's like, is my hand shortened that it can't save? Am I weak or something? Don't you remember the Passover was supposed to be the reminder? God is powerful to save. He's done it before. The second reason is that every time they sacrificed that lamb, they were supposed to remember that this sacrifice took the place of their sons. It was supposed to be very personal. Like, if it weren't for this lamb, I would not have a family. I would not exist. Right? That, that's a real thing. I think it's supposed to like, hit them in their heart every single time they do this service. The only reason they didn't experience death by the destroying angel was because that lamb had taken their place. 
The third reason was to remind themselves of the promise to Eve that one day one of her descendants would crush the serpent. Much more than the nation of Egypt, the entire world has been impacted by Satan and, that, and his war against God. And one day God would crush Satan in much the same way that he crushed the Egyptians at the Exodus. He would undo the power of Satan and ultimately destroy evil and sin and death. And that, that Passover was a continual reminder of the covenant promise of God that he was going to solve this problem for the whole world. And lastly, God wanted to remind them on a regular basis that they were not saved from destruction because they were the children of Jacob or the children of Abraham. They were saved because they believed in the sacrifice of the Lamb. When Jesus, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, when he was about 33 years old, he brought 12 of his disciples into an upper room to celebrate the last Passover that the world would ever need. And on that night, during this meal of roasted lamb and unleavened bread, Jesus took the unleavened bread, tore it, and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he gave them this cup of grape juice, and he says, this is the new covenant of my blood, not the lamb's blood. Notice that he didn't give them a lamb to continue the Passover service. He said there's a new covenant, a new promise, something new to look forward to, and the, the last supper replaced Passover. No longer do we look back at the Exodus and forward to the Messiah. We look back on Jesus' sacrifice and forward to His second coming. That next day, Jesus hung on the cross, gave up His life, and then Sunday morning rose from the grave. And, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ is our Passover lamb. Maybe this is the whole point of Aminadab's story. I'd like you to, to notice that it's, it's a good thing to follow God's advice. You're going to live a much better life when you follow God's advice. I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. Aminadab and the children of Israel learned through some difficult experiences that when they follow God, when they believe in Him and have faith in Him, that their life is going to be preserved um, it's going to be healthier. The relationships are going to be better. They're going to have more financial security. Like, life is going to be better when you follow God's plan. But even when our life is good, we still live in an evil, wicked world, and we still experience disease and brokenness and death. And Aminadab, we don't know his story very much because it, he's, he's taken over by Nashon, during the time of this traveling in the wilderness. It may be that Aminadab died, maybe having seen the Red Sea crossing or something of that nature, but he was an old man. So maybe he didn't see the whole story. Maybe he never got to the border of Canaan, the promised land filled with milk and honey. But Aminadab looked forward with hope to the good life. And that's really the story that we experience too. In spite of all the wisdom of following God's plan, life's going to be better when you do, until Jesus comes and takes us home with Him, we really don't have the good life God designed, do we? And so we look forward to the good life. This is the, the, the basis of the gospel. It's a, uh, based on hope. Hope is the mainstay of God's good news. 
because God created, because he rescued Noah from the flood, because he made a covenant with Abraham, because he delivered Israel from Egypt, because Jesus died in our place, because he promised to come again, we have hope. And like the Israelites, we need to regularly remind ourselves of the hope that God has given us. We have hope. And in the meantime, God invites us to faithful trust and a hope-filled obedience. And instead of a lamb's blood on our doorpost, we lay, lay our sins at the feet of Jesus at the cross, and we trust in Jesus' promise to forgive and cleanse. Your life might not be as good as you'd like. You might be in a place where you're frustrated with one thing or another, struggling with one thing or another. Um, we're not guaranteed good things. He does promise that he'll provide for us. And that song that we sang just a few minutes ago, um, it has some important words, right? I'm the Lord of creation, the Lord of fire and wind and sea and, right? And I will hold your hand. See, the point isn't that you're going to have a good life right now. The point is that God is present even when it's not good and that one day we will have the good life. We can trust God. We can cling to his promises with all our might. Someday soon, he'll take us to live the real good life with him. Will you stand with me and sing our closing hymn?